if you're past your 20s, how realistic is it to change someone else's brain? You know, our brains haven't just been changing throughout 7 million years of evolution. They're changing all the time. About two and a half million years ago, this is when the brain fundamentally changed. Um, you started seeing humans with brain sizes of seven to 900 cubic centimeters in species like Homo habilis and Homo erectus. And then suddenly the brain spurted to 1200 cubic centimeters in early humans like Homo heidelbergensis. But then it, it was with our species, Homo sapiens, that it ballooned to this staggering 1500 cubic centimeters. And all of these new regions for language, memory, uh, emotion, intelligence, sociability, you name it, sort of blossomed with the human brain. This book, as you said, it was, again, it's another kind of pursuit for me, a journey to figure out why do we have the brains that we do. You are listening to one of my favorite podcasts, The Brain and the Brand Show, with Timothy Maurice. Hey guys, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Thanks so much for choosing this episode. I'm Timothy Maurice, a behavioral psychology author, and today I'm pleased to continue our mission of helping you understand the brain by bringing you a conversation with neuroscientist Dr. Joseph Jabelli. In today's discussion, we explore Joseph's latest book, How the Mind Changed, The Human History of Our Evolved Brain. You'll want to continue if you're interested in understanding what the changing brain means to your identity, why society has advanced faster than our brain, and what that means for creatives and leaders who lead complex teams. Also, if it's possible for your partner's brain to change. Are we expecting change in people to occur too fast? And we'll also explore his first book, which is In Pursuit of Memory. And we'll go as far as sharing how he and I both were influenced by our grandparents' brains. Yeah, it gets personal. Please take a moment and drop me a note in the comments. This helps the show reach other people. And yes, a comment on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen makes that kind of difference. Meet neuroscientist Joseph Jabelli. Enjoy. Joseph Jabelli, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Hi, good to be with you. It's such a privilege. Uh, so much of your work and your background and your research are specific areas of passion and has touched my life personally. So just thank you for your dedication to the work that you're doing. All right, well, thank you. and Thanks for helping to make science uh, accessible um, with all of the wonderful work you're doing as well, Timothy. I appreciate that. All right, before we jump into the serious stuff where we explore your latest book, I've got a few questions where we call inside the brain. <laughs> so I try to get a little bit of access to your brain. So number one, coffee or tea? Oh, uh, coffee. That's a no brainer for me. I mean, every time <laughs> I'm, I'm a complete addict with coffee. Um, so which is, yeah, I actually wrote an article a long time ago about how too much coffee can, can maybe kill you. So uh, I shouldn't really, I should yeah. be taking my own advice, really, but definitely coffee. It's funny. I'm the same. I even go to coffee tastings. I don't know. I don't know how that happened, but let's yeah. go to number two. Tennis or golf? Uh, I would say tennis. Um, I, I mean, I tried golf like once or twice. I did kind of enjoy it, but 
uh it's a bit too slow for me i quite i kind of feel like when i'm doing a sport or exercising i need a, a vigorous workout and tennis gives me that <laughs> <laughs> so probably tennis yeah. and i like watching wimbledon as well so i would say tennis cold shower or warm shower oh oh warm shower who has a cold shower oh my god <laughs> i guess people do well i guess you do actually if it's i mean it's sweltering in london at the moment so to be fair, like a, a cold shower now is sounds sounds pretty good, but um, yeah, no, no. I mean, you know, I've I've been born and raised in England, so it's got to be a warm shower. Train or plane? Train or plane? That's in that's an interesting question. I used to have a slight fear of flying, um, which I sort of gradually got over. Uh, so I suppose I would say train, really. Um, because I don't know, I just, I just feel safer on a train, even though I, I don't know, it's probably less safe. Uh, I don't know actually. Um, <laughs> so, um, I don't, uh, I mean, I suppose a plane gets you to more interesting places, but a train I feel more at ease. So I'm probably going to pick train. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, it's interesting. Like trains have a bit of a romance about them, right? Yeah. Especially, exactly. yeah, yeah. Especially in Europe. Rome or Paris? Ooh, that is a tough one. Um, I probably would go for Rome. Uh, I, I don't. I mean, they're both beautiful places. I, uh, I just about prefer maybe Italian culture and cuisine and the history of the place. I mean, it's like you know, it's like if you ask me to live live in somewhere live somewhere other than other than England, I probably would pick Italy, uh, mostly for the food. So. Okay. Yeah, probably the okay. food, the coffee culture. Yeah, probably. Uh, Got comedy. it. Got it. Comedy or drama? Uh, it all depends. I mean, there's some. There is some great drama at the moment, like The Crown. I was hooked on that for a while. Uh, <laughs> comedy. I. Mm, I feel like comedy has to be done in a much better way to to really pull it off. Like bad comedy is, it, it for me is is worse than bad drama. I don't quite. Oh, that's really interesting. You're so right, actually. <laughs> I don't quite know why. It's just sort of cringeworthy, isn't it? Whereas bad drama, you still get something out of it. So probably probably drama, I suppose. Okay. All right. Seafood, plants, or meat? Uh, I mean, I my guilty confession here is 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 meat. I mean, I'm I am a I'm a big meat eater. I I, I tried veganism for a, about a month just recently, actually, um, and I struggled with it, so I've so I've stopped doing it. Um, I might try again because it did. I did actually feel quite good for a period of time, but then I felt quite weak and tired. So now I'm back on the meat. Oh but, yeah. But meat, yeah. I mean, uh. Yeah, I I I love meat, <laughs> uh, but I love seafood as well. But if you if you force me to pick, it would have to be meat. Okay, cool. Well, I've been doing veganism for about a year now, and uh, uh, yeah, I've, well, for me, it's sports. So my recovery, I'm really big on tennis, basketball, running, and my recovery time has just increased in such to such an extent that I feel so much better. You know, that I, I haven't gone back. So, but it'd be interesting to see. My, some of my friends are like, dude, you'll last another two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I thought a month for me was quite good. And you're right about with exercise. Uh, I did feel like stronger and fitter and I, my, my heart felt healthier. And, and I yeah. it helped with like things like anxiety. But I don't know. I feel like maybe I need to build up to it a bit more because I started to really, I just started to miss it, miss the meat a lot. But yeah, yeah, I'll give it another go. Okay. 
<laughs> All right, last one. The brain or the heart? Oh, well, I mean, I mean I've got to pick the brain, obviously. Um, is, <laughs> is it like which one I find more interesting? <laughs> well, I, I thought it would be a, a fun question because I thought it would be kind of obvious with yeah. your work and with the brain. Well, but, I, you know, I wanted to ask you because you never know. I mean, yeah, it's just purely like scientifically, obviously the brain I find uh, much more interesting, although the heart is very interesting as well. Um, I don't know. But then if you were asking me sort of like metaphorically, um, you know, I am, a, I am kind of a strong believer in like follow your heart as, as, as well as listen to your head. If you do just one, if you just do just one, you're sort of doomed to something or other. But, but so, so uh, yeah, I've, I've got to pick the brain. <laughs> Thank you. These sort of binary kind of questions are tough, right? You know, it's like, ah, I love both, you know, you know <laughs> but I, I always find them a lot of fun. Thank you so much. You know, I wanted to just launch into this conversation by, you know, asking you, you know, why have you dedicated your life to understanding the brain, to understanding memory, to understanding just the, you know, how to bring the generates and how do we get more out of it? You know, what's this journey been about for you? What moves you daily? So it's, it's a very good question. I suppose the best answer I could give to that is that I just find the brain so endlessly fascinating. Um, I just think it's absolutely extraordinary. Here we have essentially what is a, a three pound massive tissue of just you know, electrical cells, you know, f- talking to each other, you know, f- firing these things that we call action potentials, which are just electrical impulses. And that, that gives rise somehow to all of our thoughts and feelings, our emotions, our, our ability to like, to understand the world around us, to, to make things intelligible, to, to, to build things like the Large Hadron Collider and sequence our own genome. I just find it extraordinary. Uh, how, how has that come about? Um, and so it's sort of been my obsession to, to try and understand it. Um, it's, it, you know, it's a stupefyingly complex organ. Uh, lots of scientists have, have, have said that it's the most complex object in the known universe and that they're, they're probably right. Um, but it, it's, it's because it's a story of us. I, I'm, I'm just, desperate to understand it and when I first went into neuroscience it was very much in its infancy it still is very much in its infancy as a field but and for me that's the really exciting thing about it we, we know that all of our higher faculties come from the brain we know that our brains are unique in many ways um, and we know that you know the, the, the human brain performs all these wonderful computations in some kind of magical biological way so I'm just obsessed with learning what the, what those mechanisms are, like why are we the way we are compared to other great apes? Uh, what is it about our mind that makes us who we are? So I suppose it's it's really that hunger and fascination with the brain that is is why I, I continue to try and figure it out. When you were a teenager, did you imagine you'd be a neuroscientist? Because neuroscientist must be like the coolest title, right? Like if you're out at a bar, or maybe actually, actually. If I'm at a bar and I say I'm a neuroscientist, is it jarring? Does it pick people off? Do they get intimidated? What happens when you tell somebody out randomly that I'm a neuroscientist? 
um that's a that's a good question i don't know i don't i i, I suppose i don't really tell I, I try not to to voice it too much i suppose because um you get you you either get i don't know you either get a sort of uh a reaction of oh that's cool um followed by some some cool questions about the brain um or they sort of i don't know or it's uh maybe i don't know or it can sort of not put people off but maybe make people i don't know I, I you know think that you're sort of like a sudden you know super nerdy scientist. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then you know, once they think you're a sort of super nerdy scientist, depending on how they are and what they're like as an individual, that can then affect the interaction, maybe may in a bad way. So, um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I obviously don't, I don't go around saying, oh, you know, I'm a neuroscientist because I, I, I'm a big believer in these things being completely understandable to everyone. I mean. Just I have a training in neuroscience, but you know it's it, I've just formed a relationship with something that I'm very passionate about, and um, you know neuroscientists don't understand all of these things in the same way that non neuroscientists uh, don't. Uh, so I'm a you know I'm a I actually quite like it when people from a non neuroscience background give their take on things because it can open up all these avenues that scientists with their kind of tunnel vision didn't think about before. Ah, nice, nice. So did you see yourself becoming a neuroscientist as a kid? If not, when did you decide this is something I want to do? Um, so, I mean, when I was young, I, I didn't think I was going to go into neuroscience per se. I knew that I was really interested in biology um, and in particular cell biology. I find cells endlessly fascinating. Um, and so I sort of... <sighs> I mean, I suppose that's where it sort of started out. And I spent a while studying cell biology. And then it sort of, for me, it was, uh, you know, it, there was there was a period um, just uh, during my undergraduate where uh, I, I t- took a course in neuroscience. Before that, I was doing things like genetics and cell biology and lots of other things in okay. the sciences. But it was the, the neuroscience course that really made me think, oh, my God, like this is, this is incredible. This is this is the best of cell biology, but it's directly linked to us. And I say in the book, you know, when, when one of my one of my professors talked about action potentials, and and I asked the question, well, all these action action potentials, all these electrical impulses in the brain, that you're telling me that's that's me, that's my thoughts and feelings and memories and ability to plan for the future. It's just ultimately the, the firing of these electrical cells. And you know, she said yes, and I I found that absolutely sort of flabbergasting and I thought well for me that was the sort of moment where I connected the three pounds of tissue in my head to my actual experience of the world um and I suppose from then on I I just kept reading about it I I became hooked on popular science books about the brain um and then um I did a master's in neuroscience to try and figure out what particular area of neuroscience I wanted to study because it's such a huge realm you know you can study the very small or the very big and I couldn't figure out if I I wanted to study cell and molecular neuroscience or the sort of more expansive cognitive and behavioral neuroscience Um, and I sort of found myself drawn more towards the cell and molecular um, but still keeping some interest in the in the sort of cognitive and behavioral areas Um, but then it just sort of went on from there and um, yeah like I say in the book now I I know I just uh, think about it all the time and uh, yeah, 
uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it's just such an exciting field to, to study and to, to be in because it's, as I say, so much in its infancy. Are there any books, any books that you came across, any pop psychology books that really triggered an additional drive? I mean, one of them for me was Paul Bloom's book about pleasure and how the brain processes pleasure. Do you have any of those type books that, that really got a, got you going? Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember um, being a huge fan of Oliver Sacks's uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Oh, yeah. I, I love yeah. that book. Great. Um, I just, you know, it talks about a patient with the visual agnosia, just uh, the, the, and the, patient, the inability to, to, to actually understand what he's seeing, and he sort of goes to grasp mm. his hat, but he ends up grabbing his wife's head and, and uh, <laughs> just these I mean, it was stuff like that that really thought got me thinking, oh, my God, this is the brain really is fascinating. And when you hear about, you know, people who have, you know, a stroke that takes out only, you know, a few neuro, you know, neuronal circuits in the brain and suddenly they see the world in snapshots, Um, you know, something that staggering from a tiny, tiny bit of damage. I mean, I, I say in the book that, you know, you could you could lose so many you, you could lose other limbs and other organs but still think and feel as if nothing had really happened but if you yeah. lost so much as a, a grain of sand in your brain your behavior alters dramatically um so it was it was the oliver sacks books for that reason got me thinking oh my god this is this is such a precious thing that we've inherited from evolution um i also remember really liking um uh Vilina ramanachan's uh is it ramanachan uh, uh the phantoms in the brain um oh wow i've heard of that yeah it's um i think he's written some he's written some other books as well that are very good um and that was about phantom limb a phantom limb disorder and people oh yeah, still, yeah, still, yeah. Think it's still still feeling as if the limb was there despite having lost the yeah. limb and again that yeah. got me really interested in, in the brain's incredible ability to to trick ourselves and um i suppose i mean i was, I was also always reading Lots of um, cell and molecular popular science books like Stephen sure. Ray, Nick Lane, and but yeah, okay. there's 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 too many to name now. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Well, let's transition to your books. Before we get into the current book that we're going to discuss, your latest, How the Mind Changed, let's just look quickly at In Pursuit of Memory. Why did you go In Pursuit of Memory? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, I, I went uh, in pursuit of memory to uh, essentially find out uh, what happened to my grandfather who was struck down with Alzheimer's disease. Um, he ended up dying with Alzheimer's disease. And uh, at the time, I, you know, I was a teenager. I didn't really understand what was happening to him. But I say in that book, you know, he would go for these long walks and we would lose him in the neighborhood. And he, he didn't understand why he was doing it. And then it didn't take long after that, that he he eventually just didn't recognize any of us. And so he developed quite severe Alzheimer's disease. And I just wanted to find out why that happened, like what had what had actually happened to him. Um, and so when I was studying, when I was studying neuroscience, um, a lot of the research I was involved in was linked to neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Huntington's and uh, a lot of Alzheimer's research as well. And I think because I had that personal connection um, having actually witnessed someone with Alzheimer's disease and what it does, because it really is a devastating disorder 
And as I say in that book, it's, you know, it's, it's the next global pandemic. Um, it's, it's, it's overtaken heart disease and cancer. It's the leading cause of death in many places. Um, one in three people will end up having Alzheimer's disease because we're all living much longer. Um, and once you pass a certain age where, you, you know, your risk of like heart disease and stroke and all these other things passes, you then suffer a huge risk of Alzheimer's disease. And so, I just wanted to essentially figure out what it was. What, what, what was, what was it that took my grandfather away from us? What was it that is now becoming a global pandemic? And ultimately, what can we do about it? And, um, you know, I, I learned throughout my research that Alzheimer's is a disease that will, will yield to science and reason in the same way that cancer is yielding to it. Um, we just need to figure out what the mechanisms are. Why are so many cells in the brain dying? How are they linked to memory? You know, how, how can we stop it? essentially. So it was a sort of journey yeah. and a quest to, to try and figure out how to stop Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, I think, I mean, this, this book is, as you obviously know, it's done really well. And I've noticed that I think one of your, the idea of interviewing other people was extraordinary because like in my case, you know, having a grandmother who, you know, passed away with Alzheimer's as well, I've had all these questions why she couldn't remember my name, but she remembered a song. Why was that? Mm. That's yeah, that's a fascinating question because we, we do know that uh, things like uh, music and smell um, are so closely linked to memory that in Alzheimer's disease patients, they, they often remain intact for a long period of time. Um, there's a wonderful video on YouTube actually that went viral of um, an Alzheimer's patient who's um, very severe, very in the late stages of Alzheimer's. And um, he's played an old song and suddenly oh, wow. he becomes a lot more animated, a lot more coherent. There's a lot more life w- within him and he recognizes people and he's sort of brought back very briefly. And this is, this is also linked to why uh, people build these things called memory corners, um, where you just take things from the patient's old life and present it to them and for the same it's the same it's the same underlying reasons as the song as the as music bringing back memories so we think that it's because essentially when when alzheimer's strikes it's the short-term memory you lose first and then gradually as the disease develops it's the long-term memory you start to lose but that happens quite late in the disease that's why you find that patients will often remember things from their very distant past um you know but 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 it's but it's the sort of early and the mid memories that have been erased and we think that's to do with just how the disease spreads in the brain so it attacks the hippocampus first which is responsible for short-term memory and then it sort of works its way out to the neocortex where we think long-term memories are kind of stored um so that's probably the reason for it as to why music and smell and all those things sort of elicit that 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 spark of neuroconnectivity and bring back certain things within an Alzheimer's patient's memory and life. It's, it's again, it, it'll be due to, due to the way that the senses are linked to certain parts of the, of the brain in terms of memory. We know that smell and memory are very intimately linked. Um, and it's the same with music. So that'll be why, you know, you play an old song to an Alzheimer's patient or you, you try and bring something back from their early life and it will spark something within them. It will bring them back very, you know, however briefly, um, you know, it, to, 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 to this person they once were. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's a great question. And lots of scientists are exploring those sorts of things for therapies now. You could, 
I mean, your latest book is How the Mind Changed, which could have easily titled this In Pursuit of How the Mind Changed. Because <laughs> <laughs> you seem like you were still in pursuit of the evolution of the brain. You know, I want to go back about 230,000 generations and look at the brain of Tume or Tumai. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us who Tume or Tumai, well, firstly, was the correct pronunciation. And what was different about their brain? Mm. So uh, Tumai, as uh, um, essentially the, the, the earliest known human ancestor, um, an ancestor that lived, as you say, 230,000 generations before us, about 7 million years ago. And uh, Tumai had, um, by our standards, uh, a tiny brain. Uh, it was about the size of a child's fist, um, only 350 cubic centimetres. And I suppose in this book, I wanted to essentially tell the, the, the brain's natural history. So I've gone back seven million years and documented all of the diff- all of the humans that from that point up to the present day and looked at their brains and how the human brain has changed over time. And the, the most extraordinary thing about uh, about uh, Tumai, or uh, as we know, the ancestors are technically known as uh, Sahelanthropus chidensis, was again this this tiny brain, but then over over time the brain gradually ballooned in size to a, a massive fifteen hundred cubic centimeters, which is the size of the modern day human brain, and it's it's kind of just extraordinary how this happened because Tumai's, as I said, was three hundred and fifty cubic centimeters, and then you get to Australopithecus, Lucy, another human ancestor, only only a couple of million years later. But even even Lucy's brain wasn't that big by our standards; it was only about six hundred cubic centimeters. And then when our genus Homo arrived um, about two and a half million years ago, this is when the brain fundamentally changed. Um, you started seeing humans with brain sizes of seven to nine hundred cubic centimeters in species like Homo habilis and Homo erectus, and then suddenly the brain spurted to twelve hundred cubic centimeters in early humans like Homo heidelbergensis. But then it, it was with our species Homo sapiens that it ballooned to this staggering fifteen hundred cubic centimeters, and all of these new regions for language, memory. Uh, emotion, intelligence, sociability, you name it, sort of blossomed with the human brain. And so this book, as you said, it was, again, it's another kind of pursuit for me, a journey to figure out why do we have the brains that we do? What is the history behind the human brain? Um, And how do do we figure out ourselves by looking at at past human brains? You know, the, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there a correlation between the size of your brain and how many people you can kind of have in your community or how many successful relationships you can build. And if so, is that the reason why Facebook limits the amount of friends or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a, it's a really great, great question. So I have a chapter in the book um, about the social brain. And um, at one point in that chapter, I discuss this phenomenon. Um, so there's a very famous number called uh, the Dunbar number um, after uh, the biologist, Robin Dunbar, Oxford university. And, uh, he studied uh, humans and primates and came to the conclusion that um, humans are only really capable of having about 150 uh, uh, you know, close friends, essentially. And that once you go beyond 150, the relationships, you know, are so tenuous that, you know, I mean, you can question whether or not they're really relationships at all, I suppose, as opposed to just acquaintances. Um, 
And this, the interesting thing that Dunbar found is that uh, the number of friends we have or the number of people we know it does correlate with the size of the orbital frontal cortex, a region of the brain that we think is partly responsible for social cognition. But social cognition, as I say in the book, is it's a very complicated thing. It's not relocated really in any one brain area. It's more to do with a constellation of what we call neural modules spread throughout the brain. And they'll be responsible for things like, you know, if you're if you're just thinking about someone you like, then modules in the uh, frontal cortex will activate. If you're thinking about someone's body language and what that says in a social context, then you'll have uh, mod- neural modules in the parietal cortex. So it really is spread out throughout the cortex. And it's a really interesting question because it's, it comes down to what neuroscientists call the social brain hypothesis, which is the idea that humans have astonishingly big brains be- to be social. And that does kind of make sense when you think about it. I mean, I say again mm. I say in the book, you know, we as a species of ape are extraordinary in the sense that we can all sit in an airplane together and we might get bothered by each other, annoyed, but basically we're civil. If you replace that, <laughs> if, if you replace the airplane with you know, chimpanzees or another type of ape, uh, they would just be tearing each other to shreds. You know, I mean, and a, a chimpanzee, chimpanzees would fight to the death before they'd even consider carrying a log together. So it's when you think about that, we, we have we are incredibly social uh, apes, mutant apes, but we're incredibly social. And that that is one of the defining things about about human beings. And so there there is most likely a great degree of truth in the social brain hypothesis. The interesting question is. So, you know, we grew huge brains to, to be social, but what is the limit on that number? Is it actually 150? Yeah. Or is that constrained yeah. by the times? Because, because the way technology is changing now, the way social media operates now, the way the world is becoming so much more interconnected, that number could go way beyond that. We just don't know. Um, so it's a great question. I mean, we don't really know the answer, but we do know, as you said, that lots of things operate around units of 150, like the average Facebook number of friends, I think is 150 and, yeah. Uh, units and armies and factories and villages tend tend to operate around 150, but you know that could change over time. The brain, as I say in the book, the brain is always changing; it's always evolving. Well, that's exactly which is why I love your humility because ten years from now we will be having an evolved conversation, right? So exactly. Exactly. Uh, let, let's let's talk about why a child or a leader should care about how the brain has evolved. You know, if I'm sitting with a child or a teenager or someone who's leading a big corporation, why should it matter to them that the brain has evolved? So I think it's important to understand the history of the human brain because it not only tells us the history of us, it helps people understand so many things about human nature, which they don't think about enough. So take emotion, for instance. I have a chapter in the book about emotion and how we think the brain uh, generates all these different emotions and the conclusion that that many neuroscientists are coming to now is that emotions are largely driven also by social constructs by the environment that you happen to have been born into and so i think it's important for people to understand something something even just like the neuroscience of emotion because i think it's important to because it helps us cut people more slack right it helps us understand that we're human beings that we we are very much the product of our environment and so you know, I, in that chapter, I talk about the fact that 
you know, the, the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks didn't smile in the way that we do, that the smile that we perform today is actually a social construct um, that only really became popular during the Middle Ages after the French neurologist uh, Guillaume Duchesne popularised it with improvements in dentistry. So, I mean, the ancient Greeks, obviously, the ancient Greeks and Romans did smile. They did curl their lips up into something resembling a smile, but it didn't have the same emotional um, symbolism that smiling does today. And, you know, that and this 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 social construction of emotion spreads to all areas. Uh, you know, the, the fear of falling off a cliff is a natural trigger, for instance, but the fear of a job interview is a socially constructed trigger. And, you know, at one point I even talk about uh, how important the environment is when you when you would just when you look at something as simple as, you know, our attitudes towards gender roles and the environment, like how we feel about those today with how we felt about them only a few decades ago or, or how some parts of the world sadly don't feel the same way. So our emotions are not universal. They're not something that's just baked into the brain, that's hardwired into the brain. We actually create them to make sense of our social ever-changing world. And I think if people start to understand that sort of thing and look at the brain in that way, that we are as much a product of our nurture as our nature, I think it will, I think it will benefit us in terms of just how we are with each other. Um, I think people don't cut each other enough slack. We, we live in kind of quite an unforgiving environment, especially with social media and Twitter. Um, but we're all, we're all the products of a very long, very messy brain evolution. Yeah, and so I think it's, uh, I think if, if the more we understand, you know, our brains and, and how we ha- how we have the brains that, that we do and why we have the brains that we do, the, the more we can understand ourselves and each other. Sometimes I wonder if, especially since society evolves much faster than our brains, if sometimes we're asking too much of ourselves. You know, if you think about <laughs> the fact that our our fundamental architecture is largely based on what our ancestors were experiencing, if you think about just how much more evolved our societies are, I think a lot of the social justice issues, a lot of the chaos that we face, et cetera, is it seems to me that it's a result of the incongruency between how fast society is moving and how slow our brains are evolving. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from everything from our instincts around flight, flight, et cetera. And I feel is sometimes that some of these social justice movements, and I may get a lot of flack for this, are expecting progress to happen too fast. It almost seems that there needs to be a little bit of empathy for how slow the brain evolves. <laughs> what would you say to social justice warriors who are like, no, everything needs to change now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a great question. I suppose it's it's very true that we our brains are not evolving as quickly as our society is and i suppose the thing with the a lot of the thing with a lot of these social justice movements is the underlying message is is a good one i suppose that you know obviously we need to we we need to help the environment climate change is a is 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 essentially it is an emergency we need to deal with it we need to get to grips with it um but I, do, I mean, the very reactionary type of people in, in whatever political or uh, cultural sphere 
always sort of put me off. Um, you know, I think, you know, if you had to ask me the thing I dislike the most about human nature, it would be uh, dogmatic certainty in any realm. And, <laughs> and the reason is, and, you know, you know, whether it comes from, you know, the, what, you know, the, the far right or the far left um, or, or theocracies or anything, anything of that nature, um, it's the dogmatic certainty, which, you know, like you said, says, you know, says to human beings, you must be this way now. And yeah, yeah. as you say, we, we are a messy product of seven million years of brain evolution. Um, you know, we, we're, we're mutant apes. Um, we've come an enormous way. We are an extraordinary um, type of, of ape. And, it, and as I document in the book, you know, we, we have these colossal, uh, extraordinary brains that are capable of so much and offer us limitless possibilities. Um, but evolution is a slow process. And I think any call for human beings to be, you know, to, to, to have the right views now or to change their mind now and to, to be sort of, you know, that whoever's ideal of perf- perfection now is, is dangerous. I think, as I said earlier, we need to be a much more forgiving and patient society. Is technology changing our brains for good or bad or both? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I'd be inclined to say both. I mean, on the one hand, it has to be good in the social realm, in the sense that we're expanding our connectivity. So when you think about our tribal nature, a lot of it is, and a lot of the political problems around the world, it's ultimately the product of a kind of xenophobic nationalism, and it's sort of cloaked in other other ideologies but also a lot of the time it comes down to that and we're breaking apart that by expanding our social capabilities using things like social media you know i can talk to my relatives you know in iran i can speak to friends in argentina uh you know i I couldn't do those things before without social media and technology and so that has to be a good thing um as i say in the book that's the sort of thing that's encouraging human minds to operate in what's essentially a global village as opposed to warring factions um but too much technology is unequivocally bad uh you know when i see how much smartphone use goes on uh it does worry me a bit uh because we know for instance that if you use your smartphone too much you are you essentially deactivate this thing called the default network in the brain and the default network is, it's a constellation of neural circuits throughout the brain, but it's heavily involved in daydreaming and creativity. And it's very active when you're asleep. It's very active when you're not focused on a task. And it has this incredible ability to, to boost creativity and to, to boost memory and helps with problem solving. And there's evidence to suggest that it's, it, it helps um, stave off uh, uh, neurological diseases of old age and using your smartphone too much you actually disactivate that network and so you know you're sort of if you use wow. it, you know so you're, you're 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 harming your brain in that sense um you're you're diminishing your creativity uh so and i think yeah so i, I try and limit my smartphone use quite a lot i've gone through phases where i've thought i'm going to I'm going to do what Yuval Noah Harari's done and just just ditch it all together. <laughs> but, but then I found it very difficult to function. So I'm just trying to be quite strict with it. But uh, yeah, I think it's a bit of both, basically. If someone is in a relationship and they're hoping to change their partner, 
Mm. How realistic is it to, if you're past your 20s, how realistic is it to change someone else's brain? Is that even possible? Yes. Yeah, I would say so. Um, uh, you know, our brains haven't just been changing throughout 7 million years of evolution. They are, they're, they're, they're changing all the time. And that's because we have this remarkable ability called neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to essentially rewire itself to changing circumstances, to changing environments. And if you think about how much people change their minds on, on loads of things, um, you know, uh, whether it be a political issue, a scientific issue, a cultural issue, um, you know, minds change throughout the course of, of people's lives. And that fundamentally comes down to neuroplasticity and the growth and elimination of new synapses. It all comes down to the way the brain is talking to itself and it's constantly refining how it thinks about things, you know, maybe figuring out that that was an, that was an error thinking and that needs to be, that needs to be corrected or updated. And it's all ultimately updated and, 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 and changing itself in response to a changing world. Um, but for that reason, um, uh, it is possible to, to, um, to change people's minds. And in doing so, I suppose you change the, the neurochemistry of their brain. But, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose, and, and, you know, the, 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 the great example you used was about partners. Uh, you know, uh, you know, my girlfriend's changing my mind all the time on things, you know, so I mean, I, I change, her time, change her mind all the time on things. There's, there's some pushback at wherever I can, wherever I can get it. But, you know, and I think that's, that's the way that humans should be with one another. I think an active, healthy mind is one that's always changing. I'm always very wary of uh, dogmatism, of certainty, of people getting trenched and bogged down and not changing their mind. This is part of the reason I try and stay away from politics because I just can't stand the, the tribal nature of it. You know, this is my team and I don't care what they do. It's my team. It's just nonsense. Like you have to be able to change your mind depending on the, the circumstances. So yeah, I, it's, it's definitely possible to, to, to change people's uh, brain chemistry you know, using, as I say, neuro, neuroplasticity and all of the ways that the brain has evolved to be able to change itself. But there must be some things that can't be changed. If you meet a partner who is the accounting, actuarial science type, and you want them to go off and become a painter, isn't that a bit unrealistic? Hmm. Yeah, well, I suppose when it comes to these very sort of deep-rooted passions for things in life, you're going to have a hard time, I suppose, convincing people to <laughs> do something else. Um, so I but suppose if someone on... is more right brain, but just in general, if somebody is more right brain or left brain oriented, is some of that genetic? I think that's what I'm trying to get to. Is is some of that genetic? If you have the extreme types, you know, you 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 take a fashion designer who spent their entire life who's just more inclined to the creative side of themselves, and then you have a parent who wants them to go off and become a, you know, an engineer. It's that type of shift, psychological or genetic. And is it too much to ask? Yeah, I suppose it would be it would be a blend of both. I mean, neurogenetics plays uh, an enormous role in shaping, you know, many aspects of our of our behaviour. And I agree with you that there would be things that would heavily predispose someone to a certain career, let's say, or um, a certain interest. Um, 
but I still think they're malleable um, in a top-down way because even if even if scientists find a suite of genes that predisposes someone more to arts, let's say, than um, I don't know, to law or medicine or so, I don't know, whatever it may be, uh, you know, again, the environment sculpts the brain in such a, a, a such a remarkable way that it all depends on the sort of the relationship you have with whatever you're interested in and, and, and how your surround, how your surroundings push you towards more one thing over the other. Um, There's certainly an element of, of, of genetics determining our behavior. Um, I suppose it's so difficult to quantify it. Some scientists would say, you know, our behavior and our likes and dislikes are 50% neurogenetics 50 percent environment some people put it at 80 20 both ways depending mm, on sure, sure um so i would say yes i mean I, I mean i tend to lean towards more towards the sort of 50 50 um okay things all right that's awesome i mean i, I want to move to a close of the conversation by asking you in your pursuit of memory and your pursuit of understanding how the brain has changed what have you discovered about how we can keep our brain sharp and degenerating at a slower process? How do we awaken ourselves? How do we keep ourselves sharp? If your girlfriend, for example, wants you to wake up and be more engaged and to do more with her, what do you do to your brain? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's, 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 Oh God, there's so many things depending on the sort of person you are, I imagine. Uh, well, I would say, um, first and foremost, uh, read, uh, reading has an incredible ability to change your mind. Um, I talk about this in, in how the mind changed it. There's all these studies showing that reading, uh, promotes the growth of white matter tracks in, in, uh, regions of the brain associated with learning and memory and, um, can help sort of invigorate your mind in so many ways. And lots, one of the main reasons that, people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia can stay cognitive, relatively cognitively intact later on in life is it, it often is because they've had quite a long uh, life history of, 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 of always learning of, of, of always of, of reading and keeping the mind sharp. So uh, I would say read. Uh, there are like some dietary things now. Um, that, so there's a lot of evidence that a Mediterranean diet is very good for the brain. Um, there's really interesting research into turmeric as well, um, uh, that shows that that has a very neuroprotective effect in many ways. So I, I've been ordering lots of term, oh, wow. turmeric lattes when, it, you know, in coffee oh, shops nice. for that reason. Oh, no. Nice. Um, and I suppose, uh, exercise as well. Um, we know that a healthy heart, it, it almost by definition means is a healthy brain as well. Um, so many of the, uh, disorders, neurological disorders later on in life are also linked to quite poor heart health. So it's really important to keep your heart healthy, to keep the brain healthy as well. Um, so I suppose it's, you know, it ultimately that boils down to all the sort of boring common sense stuff, right? <laughs> you know, stay yeah, busy, yeah. active, eat well, you know, keep, 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 but like uh, encouraging the growth of new synapses by reading, by learning, by, by changing your mind, however you can. Um, but also there are, there are new things now, like there's a lot of, um, focus on things like mindfulness meditation, which we know has, uh, an incredible ability to promote the growth of certain fiber tracks in the brain associated with good, good mental health. Um, so things like that as well. Um, yeah, all of that good stuff, I would say. Yeah. And I guess for the rest, 
people can get your books. And I really, really, as we started this conversation, appreciate the pursuit that you're on. And I look forward to seeing where it takes you. So Joseph Cervelli, thank you for joining us on the Brain and Brand Show. No, no, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Guys, thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate you choosing this episode. Please share with someone you care about. Until next time.